Good evening. Welcome to Coffee House Theology. Glad y'all, 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 again, y'all do know we're teaching church history, right? Y'all fantastic attendance. No, it, it, what a great, right? What a great couple of sessions. And looking at, looking at how we got to where we are, right? The, how the Bible became what it was last week. And so this week, we're gonna start really down the road of church history, starting with where, where the Bible leads off and then what happened in those first few years, right? Following, following the apostles, following the, the biblical times. And it's fascinating. It's, it's fascinating. That's what Jay and I were talking about earlier, that things really haven't changed, Right, things really haven't. Things are very similar now as they were as they were in the in the first and second centuries, in the fourth and fifth centuries, in the tenth and eleventh. Right, it's just amazing that human beings are the same. Shocking, shocking. Up uh, up on the screen, we have the. Uh, QR code if you want to scan it. If you're not getting our weekly email, uh, you're welcome to join. We send out this week's notes next week on that email. So if, if you want to get that. And then we got the, uh, there we go. And this is Slido. If you want to ask questions or um, comment, we'll, we, or if you want to like questions that other people have asked to bring them up to the top. So we will address them. Yeah, grab it now. Jay's got slides for us tonight. Um, so yeah, I know we're excited. He, he actually does some visual stuff. He's actually been, been to some of these places and I just stay here in Tennessee. Um, anyway, so the room number, if you want to go to slido.com, the room number is 1101654. Um, I think we're good. We're good. All right, let's pray and let's get started. Father God, we are thankful, thankful for your grace, thankful for your son that saves us, thankful for your word, Father, and, and thankful that you are a constant that, that in a world of chaos where, where things seem very unstable, things seem very uh, chaotic, that you are our stability. You are where we can plant our feet in peace. And so, Father, tonight, as we, as we begin to understand how we got to where we are, from the times described in, in, in the Scripture in the, in the first century to where we are now, open our hearts and our minds to your presence in these times so that we can see how you're working then and how you're working now. And Father, as we encounter your truth, do not leave us the same people. Don't let us be the same people that walked in that walk out because we've encountered your truth. It's in the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Brian. And again, welcome. We're glad that you're here. We've had a kind of a couple of weeks of, of foundation to get us started down the road of church history. Uh, one week of introduction, kind of about our approach, and then last week on the history of the Bible. Uh, and so uh, we are looking forward to kind of beginning to walk through uh, the story. Uh, and to do that, we kind of have to step back, to step forward. But uh, before we do that, I did want to give you guys a little bit of a framework. Um, you always need some navigational tools to help you out when you're walking through history. Uh, when we first moved here to Spring Hill, the year was 2001. Uh, the Kroger that is now where Church of the City is had just opened. Uh, that was really all that was out here. And so we had to go to Cool Springs for everything. Uh, and because my wife and I are from Illinois, as you guys know, things are flat as a pancake up there. So everything's on a grid. It's north, south, east, west. It's easy to remember how to get from point A to point B. And if you get lost, you can just kind of look on the horizon, right? Find a landmark and figure it out. But when we moved here to the Tennessee Hills, it looks a whole lot different. And my wife is, is shall we say, navigationally challenged. Uh, and so it was just interesting that we had probably lived here five or six years and she would say, now tell me how to get to the Walmart and Cool Springs again, right? Uh, and wherever she was at, I would have to help her navigate. And you know, it was interesting because after a while we began to discuss as well the fact that she wasn't raised in church. 
um, and uh, her understanding of history, knowledge, how it all pulls together the big story is in a similar way that, that as, as she and I have been reading the Bible together over the years, she'd say, now help me understand, right? Where, when does this all happen again? How does it fit together? Uh, and I begin to realize that uh, for a lot of people, we feel the same way. When we jump into parts of the Bible, we jump into parts of the Christian story, we need those navigational tools to help us have a framework for where we're at in the story. Uh, sometimes it's like a, a movie. You walk in and somebody in your family is watching a movie or a TV show and you walk in and it's like the last you know, bit of it. You may pick up some things, but you miss a lot. Who's this character? What's their backstory? What, you know, what, what's the tension or the crisis they're facing? If you don't have a framework, then you miss it. And so uh, I want to give you uh, just a quick overview uh, of where we're kind of we're headed and I gave you guys an outline for the semester and we're still going to roughly follow that. But just so you know, kind of where, where we're going. Number one is we'll start tonight with the early church and tonight's part one. So this is from the beginnings of Christianity uh, till roughly the conversion of Constantine uh, in uh, in the 300s. Then we'll talk about the Christian empire from the Edict of Milan in which Constantine right, declared Christianity to be the official religion of the Roman Empire and formal persecution ended uh, until the, the age of the last Roman emperor. And then we'll go to the early Middle Ages. That's the, the fall of the last Roman emperor to the East and West schism between the church and 1054. Also the rise of Islam happens in that era, very important. Then we'll go to the Middle Middle Ages, uh, or as they, they call it, the High Middle Ages, from the Great Schism to the decline of the papacy, uh, kind of the era of the, the, the Crusades and the building of cathedrals, as were kind of the, the high marks of that age. And then we'll move into the Late uh, Middle Ages, the decline of the papacy to the fall of Constantinople in 1453. Uh, it's coincided with the rise of the nation state. Uh, even the way we think about nationalism, right, didn't exist uh, prior to this era. Uh, the plague happened during that time, the, the Western schism in which there were multiple popes, lots of interesting things happening. Uh, and all of that, of course, paved the way for the era of conquest. That was the age of the explorers uh, from Europe and the Reformation, which will be massive. Uh, and we actually, just a couple years ago, celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Uh, and we did a special night on that. So we'll bring that some back some of that material. And then you've got the 17th and 18th centuries. You kind of have the Catholic Protestants uh, response, the reformers, and, and then the, the response of the, the rationalists or the Enlightenment movement uh, during the 1700s. Of course, last week, Brian did an incredible job of covering the development uh, of the English Bible. That happened during the same period, the, the movement to put the Bible back in the hands of people, uh, the colonies for us here in the United States of America. So you begin to get American religious history uh, woven in. And then we get the 19th century, well, which was the rise of what we call modernity, uh, the rise of democracies, the rise of theological liberalism coming out of Europe. Uh, and interestingly enough, at the same time, a recovery of the global missions movement. Uh, so at the same time that in uh, Europe, uh, you know, theology is trending liberal, the, the missions movement is recovered. And so there's a worldwide experience of the gospel. A lot of political upheaval during this time as well. And then 20th century and beyond. Uh, so that's the end of mod uh, modernism, uh, the impact of science and technology leading to the information revolution, uh, and really the impact uh, that, that that century had on all three branches of the church. Uh, the Eastern church really struggling uh, in the communist and Marxist context. Uh, the Catholic church radically uh, changing directions with Vatican II. Uh, and then the Protestant and the fundamentalist response uh, to the theological liberalism. So that's just a little bit of a roadmap for where we're headed. And so as we go back every week, we'll kind of click on one of those and say, hey, kind of here's where we're at in the 
this story. So we're going all the way back uh, to the early history of the church. And one of the things that we have to understand is, is that Christianity was birthed into a world that already had, of course, its own religions and cultures and social and political structures. That's why I tell you when we're teaching the Bible, right, that context is key, that it matters because there, there is a world to in which Christianity emerged. And again, these dramatic, you know, high level look at these things because um, you could spend ages on any one of these. But one of the things that really marked uh, the first century was the impact of Hellenism uh, or the impact of the Greeks. Now, of course, the Romans were in charge by right now, but you've got to go back to a guy named Alexander the Great. And yes, I got maps tonight. I feel like a history teacher again. Uh, so I was actually really excited to pull these out. But uh, so obviously the impact of Alexander the Great and his empire united much of the ancient Middle East and it carried the culture with it. Uh, the Greeks uh, were into philosophy, they were into the arts, they were into beauty, uh, their language, especially what was called Koine Greek, is the Greek that the New Testament is written in. Uh, and it had expanded to this part of the world. And it's pretty incredible when you realize, you start all the way over there in the left, Greece, uh, and Alexander's conquest. He followed his father, Philip of Macedon, uh, who was incredibly powerful. As a matter of fact, it's reported that uh, Alexander the Great pouted when he was a kid because he told his dad, you're not going to leave me anything to conquer, are you? Uh, and so he had to, to try to one-up his dad, and he marched his, his armies all the way over uh, into present-day India. And I think that's one thing that most people don't realize, is just how far east uh, Alexander the Great was able to push. Uh, but Alexander the Great and his conquests and that empire, of course, laid the footprint for the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire spread farther west. And so this is the Roman Empire, kind of the end uh, of the first century. Uh, and you'll see the areas that are in green. Those were the provinces, the areas that are in pink. Uh, those were the areas in which they elected and brought senators uh, in. And they also had client states. They had all kinds of things. But it's pretty remarkable when you see uh, how far west it went. And that's going to come into play because Paul's ambition is going to be to follow Jesus's command to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. Well, the ends of the earth as they knew it at that time was Spain and those far reaches to the west all the way up into what's now England, the English-Scottish border almost. Uh, and so that, that was the goal. Uh, but it was that footprint uh, that the Romans built on, the footprint of Alexander the Great. They didn't spend as much time to the far east. Uh, but Alexander's uh, conquest laid the foundation for what the Roman Empire would become. Uh, and of course, the, the Romans were much more pragmatic and exacting than Alexander. He was interested in beauty and statues and things like that. Romans were just interested in dominating you. Uh, and so they had their legions, probably one of the greatest fighting forces ever assembled. Uh, it's far advanced as far as the, many of the cultures around them when it came to the technology of warfare uh, and how they carried things out. But what they did was they appropriated and adopted Greek culture and used it for their own purposes, basically to advance their empire. But in the middle of that, there's this tiny, tiny little nation that is at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea called Israel. 
And here is Israel. And of course, we're very familiar uh, from our Bible times with Israel. This is Israel in the time of Jesus. In the first century, you can kind of see the districts that it was carved up into. And there is a ton of backstory into why, right? The Romans ruled, but Herod was the prefect, Herod the Great, who was ruling over. He was part Jewish. Uh, he had all of these different power plays that were taking place in that part of the world at the time. And we don't have time to get into all of that. But the story and that Jesus stepped into in the first century was that after the return from the Babylonian exile, the Jewish people were committed to reestablishing their national identity. They basically said, God disciplined us. We went away from his word. We almost ceased to exist as a nation. We're never going to let that happen again. And that's a pretty powerful motivator, right? To become within a, a, just a, an eyelash of extinction. Uh, and so they said, we really need to recover who we are as God's people. They were all in agreement on that. We need to honor God, and if we do so, God will honor us. But the reality is, geopolitically, you had this tiny, tiny little country, and you'll see because of where it was situated, right there at the, the eastern end of the Mediterranean, that it, it, they were a political football for whatever empire uh, was rising and falling around them at the time. So their conviction was, if we get back to what God wants us to do, then God's going to be happy with us. He's going to restore our fortunes. We are his chosen people, and we're going to be good. The reality is, is of course, they couldn't even agree among themselves on what they needed to do in order to please God. And so they split into four basic factions, four parties. And of course, there's nuances within each of these, just like there's nuances within our Republican and Democratic parties today. And understand they weren't political parties in the same sense, but each of these groups held their own exacting ideology. The zealots were the ones who were committed to the use of force. And so having been inspired by what happened in the period in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, especially what happened with the, the Maccabean revolt, uh, they were emboldened to say, the reality is, is we're going to have to rise up and we're going to have to overthrow Rome, our Roman impressors, by, by military force. And so they were committed to the use of force. Of course, it's interesting, isn't it? When you get the list of Jesus and his disciples, we have one, Simon the Zealot, we're even told that one of Jesus' disciples came from this ideological group. Most scholars also think that Judas Iscariot was a zealot, or at least he had zealot-leaning tendencies. That name Iscariot comes from the weapon of choice for the zealots, which was called the scari. It was a curved blade, and it was basically they used it as assassins. They would sneak up on people who were either Roman uh, agents or who were traitors, Jews working for the Romans, and they would stab them to death uh, with this little dagger knife. And that was called a scari. Uh, and so Judas Iscariot, that's where his last name comes from, or the, the name that's associated with him in scripture. Uh, and so it's very possible that Judas was either a zealot or he had zealot leading tendencies, which would help explain why he got more and more frustrated with Jesus when he realized Jesus wasn't playing the game of being the political military leader who was going to physically overthrow Rome. So you get the idea. Uh, that's who these people were. And the zealots, we're going to see, uh, hear a little bit more about them in a minute as well. The second group we've been talking about extensively on Sunday morning, the Pharisees, because Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Uh, these were the people who were committed to the law, to the proper interpretation of the laws. They made sure that their laws had laws and their laws had boundaries around those laws. And on and on it went because they felt like that was the path back to God. They were committed to the Torah. It's the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, and uh, they, they memorized it. Uh, they focused on it. They built a culture all around symbolism devoted to it. And those were the Pharisees. Then you had the Sadducees. 
And the Sadducees were probably the best equivalent we could come up with in our day as kind of that liberal elite. They were willing to compromise with the Romans is what their attack was. Uh, they, they had some unique theological beliefs as well. The old joke is they, they didn't believe in a resurrection. Uh, they only focused on the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't use any of the prophetic material. Uh, and so the old joke is, right, they didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. But it boomed, right? But it is memorable, right? When you, you, you put it that term it that way. They were in the minority, but they were the wealthiest. And they were the most influential in the halls of power. Uh, and so kind of like the liberal elites today, kind of the upper 1%, right? That was kind of the Sadducees among the Jews. And then you had the Essenes. These are the people who are committed to purity. And they said, we can't deal with any of this. So we're going to the desert. And they, they went to the desert and they built communities. They had elaborate rituals. They had these baths called mikvahs. And they would literally wash themselves before they even touched scripture uh, they would take the water and they would cleanse their head and their heart and their hands and their feet. They would do all of these things, probably, right? Some of uh, John the Baptist spent some time with the Essenes. Some of his practices certainly seem to, to relate or echo Essene practices, uh, kind of the way he was a nomad and lived in the desert. Uh, the Essenes did that as well. The Essenes, last week, Brian told you about the Dead Sea Scrolls. These were the people who meticulously copied scripture, carefully preserved it, wrapped it up in those jars and put it uh, in those caves in Qumran uh, where they were found. And so these people were as well committed to, to devoted to scripture, but the kind of the equivalent today would be monks. These are people who are going to remove themselves from society. We're going to make ourselves as pure as we can. And when we do that, right, then, then God will work. So you had these four competing groups within Judaism itself trying to overthrow their overlords of the mighty Roman Empire. And so there was a lot of infighting and battling that happened within them. So it's always interesting when you read in scripture, you know, that the, the Herodians and the Pharisees conspired together against Jesus because you're realizing like these people are enemies, like they're political enemies and they're working together against Jesus. Like they, they really hated Jesus. And so you get into some of those, those layers when you read your scriptures and it will help you understand that. But of course, the, the big thing that we have to look at in this moment is, is what we call Kairos time, as we talked about last week. Two New Testament words for time, Kronos, time of the clock, and Kairos, a unique moment in time. And you have to say, out of all times in history, why did God choose into this world for the Messiah to come. It's interesting, right? Passages like Matthew chapter two, uh, verses one and two. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and we have come to worship him. If you know anything about your Bible history, you will know that Herod had spent his entire career He's brilliant, but he was ruthless. He killed many of his wives. He killed a grandfather. He had some of his sons executed. As a matter of fact, one of the Roman uh, leaders said, it's better to be Herod's pig than it is his son because you'll be treated better, right? This guy had schemed and murdered and built and you know colluded his entire career to get the title bestowed on him by the Roman Senate, King of the Jews. And now all of a sudden, these foreigners show up saying, hey, you're the king, but where's the real king of the Jews? You know why Herod flew into a murderous rage, wanted to wipe out the babies who were in Bethlehem? Because 
He had spent his entire life trying to achieve that title and he had just been awarded it. And so it was into that world that Jesus came to challenge the power structures, the cultural structures, the societal structures that were in place. The other passage that I love to look at, and again, we could look at dozens, but if you go in your Bibles to Galatians chapter four, it uses this Kairos word. Uh, Galatians 4, 4 and 5. I think it's one of the best kind of quick summaries of the gospel. I use this often in my gospel conversations. When the time, Kairos, came to completion. So in Jay's shorthand, the way I would translate that, right, is in God's perfect timing, God's appointed time, God's destined time. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. At God's right appointed moment, right, he sent his son, he was born right under the Jewish system, under the law, but to do what? To redeem those who are trying to earn their way into right standing with God so that what? So that we could be adopted, brought into God's family. And I love, as you know, in, in our church, adoption is a, is a major ministry and it's a major calling of ours on a church. And, and the reality is, is when it comes to this idea of being adopted into God's family, we're all adopted. This past summer, I was on a plane headed to the Southern Baptist Convention in Southern California. Uh, and I sat down on the plane, I was coming from Nashville, flying to Anaheim, and uh, I sat next to a woman. And I always try to strike up a little gospel conversation with whoever I'm ever with. It's a woman on my right, guy on my left, right? And so we begin to talk a little bit. And I, hey, what are you in Nashville for? And she goes, oh, we just went to CMA Fest, you know? And I said, oh, that's great, you know? Did you, did you have a good time? She said, yeah, we had a great time. I said, well, did you come with anybody? She said, yeah, I brought my husband along, but he wasn't too thrilled about it. I was like, oh, really? I was like, well, where's your husband? She was like, he's seated to your left. I was like, oh, fantastic. I got a four-hour counseling session, right? That's ahead. Uh, and so sure enough, because he was Mr. Grumpy Pants, he hadn't said a word to me the entire time. Finally, he lightened up a little bit. But people always, you know, you get in the conversation, tell me about your family. So I pulled out a picture of our family. And as you guys know, we have two children, uh, one adopted, one that we're on our way to adopt. And so as we're uh, discussing the family, you know, she says, oh, man, that picture is so, so beautiful. You know, she's like, tell me about these two. And so it's always a great chance to tell the story of how God called us and brought Liam into our family, Skylar into our home. But then I always like to say this, but I said, did you realize every one of us in that picture is adopted? And she was like, well, you, what do you mean? I mean you, you were all born? Oh, that's beautiful that you were adopted. And I said, well, what I mean is we've all been spiritually adopted, right, into God's kingdom. I had the chance to share the gospel. It's just so, such an opportunity uh, every time that we see adoption is it's a picture of the gospel. It's something that we get to point to. And that's what Paul is reminding us of in Galatians, that in God's proper time, not only did he redeem us, pay the price, right, but he went a step farther. He invited us into his family. He didn't have to do that. It would have been enough had he forgiven our sins, had he paid the penalty. But God went farther than that. He said, you come into my home. You become one of the family. You become an heir, right? You get to be a part of all of my riches and glory. You get to be a part of what I'm doing now and forever. And so I love that, love, love, love that passage. And so it was at this appointed time that God sent his son, uh, as we've been talking about on Sunday morning, his one and only son uh, to redeem us and to save us. And so you begin to realize there's a reason why. The entire world was more united than it had been at any other point. 
because of what was called the Pax Romana. The Romans had developed this, the peace of Rome, this system by which commerce and trade could flow between regions that provided perfect avenues for the gospel to spread. Most of the, the world at that time was, was you know, under the lingua franca, right? Or the, the language of the people, uh, which was Greek at that time. So uh, uh, the Bible written in Greek could rapidly spread. We'll talk about the Old Testament translation into Greek in a little bit as well. So you begin to realize that, that, that God appointed this time in this moment. The political unrest the people had, the people the Israelites had had, being uh, this political football, been bounced back and forth. We've all done our Bible reading. Some of you are in the middle of Bible reading plans right now. And I promise you, by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, you know, sometime in July, you're going to be like, come Lord Jesus. I mean, it's the same pattern over and over again of sin and rebellion and God disciplining his people. And then the people getting okay for a while. And then they slide back into the sin. And it's just, you know, same story, different verse over and over again. And so the longing of the people, right, for a Messiah, for a king to come. And then the way that God orchestrated things politically and the way he orchestrated things geographically for the gospel to spread in every way, the more you look at it, the more you obviously see God's handprints over all of history uh, and over what he's doing in this moment. But the early church emerged with some challenges, uh, some challenges to the faith. And so we're going to talk about three of those uh, tonight. Um, and then we'll, uh, we'll look at how the church thrived and we'll kind of have our devotional thought as well. So the challenge, first challenge was this, was identity. Because the very first Christians had come out of Judaism, it was just assumed early on that this was just another sect of Judaism. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 16, verse 20, uh, the people in Philippi, right, cry out about Paul and Silas, they're Jews. That's what they, they tell the people. No, not really. They had a Jewish background uh, and they were assumed to be Jews, but they weren't Jews anymore. The advantage very, very early on in the church is that Judaism was actually protected in this syncretic Roman empire. I, I bolded some words and that's what we're gonna do this semester. So when you see words and names bolded, those are names that are terms, ideas that you probably need to hold on to. So syncretism is the idea that there are a bunch of different options religiously and that somebody says they're all equal right? Uh, and so it's a blending sometimes. It's a, it's a validation of a lot of different paths to God kind of thing. Uh, but the Roman empire basically said, we have our gods and goddesses and we expect you to pay tribute to them. As the emperor system developed, the emperors saw themselves as gods. We'll talk about that too. Uh, and so you were expected to pay tribute to them. But the Romans really didn't care if you had your God, your way of worship, whatever, as long as you didn't mess with what was happening in the empire, as long as you kept the Pax Romana, as long as you kept the peace. In other words, it was okay to worship whoever you wanted to worship as long as you didn't claim your way was the only way. So very early in Christianity, it was like, oh, well, these people are, are just among the Jews and the Jews are okay, right? They're all over the empire, kind of scattered out. And so they were somewhat protected uh, under the Roman system. However, quickly the gospel spread beyond non-Jews to the Gentiles. Look with me in your Bibles at Acts chapter 11. This is actually one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. By the way, little Commercial, we begin walking through the book of Acts the first week of February, and we'll be in Acts all the way up through June. So we're going to spend a lot of time in this book, which coincides great with what we're teaching this semester. So in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, it says, those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. 
So that was the standard practice of these first Christians. Uh, They had come from a Jewish background. They're comfortable with the Jewish audience. They were learning how to contextualize and share the gospel to people who had the background of the Old Testament to understand how Jesus had fulfilled those promises. But verse 20, but there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks. Some of your translations may say Hellenists. That's the the word for Greek speakers. Also proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So, you know, if you're just reading your Bible, you're just like, okay, that's that's a great story, man. These guys are sharing the gospel. This is an earth shattering moment in the history of evangelism that the gospel goes to someone with a non-Jewish background. And here's what's remarkable. We don't even know the names of the guys who did it. They're lost to history, but God knows, doesn't he? And as we're gonna see, as we're gonna talk about, the key in the Christian faith is everyday faithfulness, doing what we're called to do and trusting God for the results. And so these men, right, they'd been saved. Now they're like, yeah, we're gonna share Jesus with these people, having no idea that they had just crossed a major barrier to the gospel. And as we'll see, Acts is all about how the Holy Spirit broke down barrier after barrier to the expansion and the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what happens, these guys get saved and a large number turned to the Lord. And so when the news reached the church in Jerusalem, they sent out Barnabas, who was one of the early leaders in the church to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. And then so what's interesting is, is then he goes and recruits this Saul of Tarsus, to come help teach and equip and disciple these who had been converted. And so you have Saul, who has become Paul, right? Uh, A little later in the biblical story, woven into the fabric of the story as well. So all of a sudden, things are beginning to happen very, very fast as the church expands and grows. And so quickly, the church moves beyond just reaching people with a Jewish background to reaching people with a Gentile background as well. Because Paul's calling was, you will be my chosen instrument to the Gentiles. And so isn't it like God to take a guy who was murdering and persecuting and terrorizing Christians with a Jewish rabbinical background and make him his chosen instrument to the Gentile people? Like God is always doing extraordinary things through ordinary people. Uh, And so, so cool. And so the gospel is spreading rapidly. Verse 26, you will see it says, uh, for uh, as Saul taught them, he brought them to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, little Christs. You you look like a little, and what what a great name, right? And I try to remind people of that. You know, as a Christian, when you carry that label, what you're saying is, right, I'm not Jesus, I can't save you. But I, my goal is to be a little version of him, uh, to point you to him. As Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And so right away, they begin to establish their own identity apart from the Jewish people. If you go over to chapter 15, you'll also see a momentous occasion in the history of the church because now that the gospel is spreading among the Gentiles, the people with the Jewish background are like, well, wait a minute. Because the Old Testament background is so important, do we need to make these people basically become Jews, get circumcised, go through the Jewish practices as well before they can really be fully accepted into the church? And under the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, 
and the influence of these early leaders of the church, guys like Paul and Peter and John, uh, the decision is made. And it, of course, is to say, if you've got a Gentile background, you don't have to become a Jew to first become a Christian. And that's massive for the expansion and spread of the gospel. So in Acts chapter 15, uh, verses 28 uh, through uh, 29 and 30, we see, for it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours. I love that priority, right? It was the Holy Spirit's decision, first of all, and then we affirmed it which by the way is the way we should make decisions in our churches, right? We listen to the spirit, we, we seek the counsel of the word and then we affirm that decision as God's people. It's not the other way around, right? We make the decision and then we ask God to bless it. No, it's we seek God's will first. It's the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that's been strangled and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things farewell. So they went off and they went down to Antioch. And after gathering the assembly, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. So now the gospel had taken another major step forward. They clarified that the gospel alone is what you need uh, to be in Christ Jesus, that you don't also have to go through all of the requirements of Judaism. And then if you flip over to chapter 17, uh, verses five and six, we will see that the culture around them also begin to identify a separation uh, from, uh, the, the, between the Jews and the Christians. So uh, there in Thessalonica, verses five and six, it says, the Jews became jealous of the missionaries and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and, mob and started a, a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I love that verse. And that's what I want people to say about us and the people we send out from this church. Gosh, these guys who've turned the world upside down have come here also with their Jesus, with their gospel, right? That should be the goal for all of us. But the point, of course, in this context of the story is, is that they were recognizing these men were not Jews, right? They were now followers of Jesus. So to that point, early Christians were easily misunderstood. Because unlike other religions, they had no sacrifices, no temples, no priests, no sacred city. And so one of the things that I've, I teach you and tell you often is, is that there's always this, you know, Christianity is just another religion, doesn't matter which one you choose. Christianity is not like every other religion in the world. It is distinct. Every religion is about what you do to get to God. There's a pilgrimage you have to take, there's laws you have to take, there's feasts you have to attend, there's things that you have to do, right, in order to be made with God in all of those religions. Christianity is the only religion that is about what God has done in coming to us. Totally flips the script on its head. And it's also the one religion by which I will argue, right? We are exclusive in our message in the sense that there's one and only way in Jesus, but we are inclusive in that whosoever will may come. And that the message of the gospel stands for all. And we'll see that in a minute. That's part of what made Christianity so revolutionary. Whereas in other belief systems, there are only certain people who can attain right, enlightenment. There are only certain people who can keep all uh, of the tenets or so they teach. And so Christianity, it was just easily misunderstood because it was so unique. They were falsely accused of practices like cannibalism because you do what? You eat the blood and, and, or you drink the blood and eat the body of your founder? You know, the, the Lord's Supper sounded strange. They were accused of incest because they called each other what? 
I said it to some of you on the way in tonight. Brother, hey brother, hey sister, right? They call each other brothers and sisters. And in particular, in the Egyptian culture of that time, that was code for we're in a sexual relationship. And so in different cultures, those things were heard differently. And so early Christians were easily misunderstood. Uh, again, the, the distance from Christianity became important, or uh, from Judaism, I'm sorry, as Christianity became distinct, distinct, became important because the Jewish struggle against the Roman occupiers became increasingly violent. Jesus predicted this in the Gospels. Jewish rebels ended up uh, storming Roman strongholds in Jerusalem and Galilee in about the middle of the first century. This led the Roman general over the area, his name is Vespasian, and then to, to, to try to crush that revolt, he, in the middle of that process, became emperor. And so he sent a, a, a guy by the name of Titus, a general named Titus, to destroy Jerusalem. Here's a depiction of it in AD 70. Jerusalem on fire, you've got the Roman legions there in the corner. Here's a few things you need to know about the fall of Jerusalem because it was an epic moment and, a, and, a, and an important moment in church history. In April 70 AD, about the time of Passover, the Roman general Titus besieged Jerusalem. Get this, since that action coincided with Passover, the Romans allowed the pilgrims to enter the city for Passover, but it refused to let them leave. What did they do? Strategically crowded the city so they would kill more Jews and they depleted food and water supplies within Jerusalem. Within the walls, the zealots, a militant anti-Roman party, struggled with other Jewish factions that had merged. So they're having a hard time deciding on what's their approach. How are we going to deal with the Romans who have just encircled the cities? And so that weakened the resistance even more. Josephus, a Jew who had uh, at one time commanded rebel forces in the north at a place called Gamla, defected to the Roman cause. He attempted to negotiate a settlement, but guess what? He wasn't trusted by the Romans because he had been a Jewish commander. And he had betrayed the Jewish people, so he wasn't trusted by them either. So you know how well that went. Went nowhere. So the Romans encircled the city. They built a wall to cut off supplies and drove the Jews to starvation. By August, the Romans breached the final defenses and they massacred much of the remaining population. They destroyed the temple and only left the Western Wall, which is now known as the Wailing Wall. That's the only part of that temple that remains as a site of prayer and pilgrimage to this day. So the loss of the temple for a second time is still mourned by the Jews during the fast of Tisha B'Av. And Roman, on the other hand, celebrated the fall of Jerusalem by erecting a arch of Titus in Rome to commemorate that. But make no mistake about it, like this was, this was a major, major development. Uh, some Jews continued to be on the run. Uh, they hid out. The last remaining Jews holed up at this mountain fortress. It's called Masada. It's not mentioned in the Bible. Uh, but it is near the Dead Sea. Uh, it's near En Gedi. Uh, it's not too far from Jericho, those kind of places. Now, if and they had built a city up here. Originally, Herod had put one of his palaces here. Herod was an engineering genius, so he had figured out a way to get water into this place. They had food storage. They could have held out for a long, long time here. This looks like a pretty incredible fortress, doesn't it? I've had the privilege of hiking up. There's a path you'll see there to the right. I spent, we spent an afternoon hiking up that snake path up to the top. Uh, and let me tell you what, it's brutal. The thought of trying to get an army up there is tough. And so uh, the Jewish people, the remaining ones, held out there for three years. But finally, the Romans and their engineers came up with an idea. And here's what they did. On the backside, they built a giant ramp out of earth. 
They built their old siege ramp and they finally overtook the defenses there at Masada. And 960 men, women, and children all committed suicide. The fathers killed the women and the children and then they killed themselves rather than to surrender to the Romans. And so this site is revered by the Jewish people to this day. Uh, it's a symbol of them, of no compromise, of never giving up uh, to the powers of the world. But it marked kind of the end uh, of the Jewish nationalist movement uh, during that time. And so at that moment, the Jewish diaspora or the dispersion, right, it accelerated. Already there were Jewish pockets of Jewish people all over the ancient world, but obviously anyone who were wanting to not be hunted down and persecuted, uh, many of them began to leave. And so that further scattered what? The Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. The, the Greek translation of those is called the Septuagint, shorthand LXX, because there were 70 translators who translated it. Uh, and so the Septuagint had spread all over the ancient world. So when Christians would walk into these cities that had a group of existing Jews, and they, many of them having a Jewish background themselves, were able to immediately enter a conversation, find a, a synagogue, because that was the way that the Jewish people stayed together in these different cities. They had synagogues that they established. They were immediately able to say, hey, you have the Old Testament. Let me tell you about the fulfillment of those prophecies. Let me tell you about the Messiah that's promised. And so even in uh, the, the destruction of, of uh, the Jewish nationalistic movement, it further spread Jewish people throughout the world, which paved yet another way uh, for the gospel to go forward. It's interesting because Acts 1.8, Jesus commands us to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, in Acts 8.1, it talks about the persecution that broke out at the hand of Paul before he was converted, and it uses the word scattered. So what's interesting is, is that if we don't go forward with the gospel, the word scattered is the Greek word for a farmer scattering seeds. Isn't it interesting that God made a way for the gospel to get out? And so it wouldn't stay huddled forever. Along these people fleeing persecution, as people fled to all different parts of the empire, the gospel went with them. Or at least if they were a Jew, the Old Testament with them, with, with, uh, went with them. Uh, and that provided a connecting point uh, for the first Christians. So by pretty much the end of the first century, Christians and Jews were recognized as two distinct groups. Jews excluded Christians and the Roman Empire began widespread persecution of Christians as well. So that leads us to the second challenge that they faced, which was persecution. Christians were not just misunderstood by Jews, but by many. Most of the early Christians had little power or money, so this made them easy targets for persecution. They weren't in positions of power. So uh, what made Christianity so unpopular in the Roman Empire? Well, number one, their stubborn belief in only one God when the Romans sacrificed to many gods. Again, the Romans were pragmatists. Give us a God, we'll sacrifice to him, just to be sure we cover all of our bases, right? We don't care, the more gods, the merrier, whatever, whatever God, whatever, you know, and, and as Roman, you know, Roman leaders would take over certain areas, they would try to appease their gods, but it was all just for show. They didn't really believe in any of it. And so that's what you begin to see happens. Also, as the emperors gained more power, it was viewed initially that as the emperor died, they became a god. But then the emperors themselves got a big head. And so, no, I, I am a living God. That's what they literally began to believe. And so because Christians believed in only one God, of course, that rubbed the empire the wrong way. Also, as we already talked about, their practices were widely misunderstood, convincing many that they were a dangerous cult or even, quote, atheists because they didn't believe in the Roman and the Greek gods and goddesses. 
They challenged the entire social order by welcoming the lower classes, valuing every human life, upholding biblical sexual ethics, and allowing women, women full participation in the church. What audacious practices these early Christians had, right? And so we see that reflected in places like Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, uh, where it says, There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Say what? The Roman system, their entire society was built on a strict social order. And, and you, by and large, could not climb out of your class to another class unless you had a patron, unless you did something extraordinary. It's kind of like the Hindu caste system that exists in India and Nepal to this day, that you were born with this destiny and you were going to live with this destiny and you would die by that destiny. And now these Christians are saying, we're all equal, we're all one. That blows the whole thing up and people didn't like it because they like to be special. They like to feel exclusive. Christians seemed, as one author said, unusual, unsafe, and unpleasant to the Roman neighbors. Renowned British minister Dick Lucas once preached a sermon in which he recounted an imaginary conversation between an early Christian and her neighbor in Rome. Ah, the neighbor says, I hear you are religious. Great religion is a good thing. Where is your holy place? We don't have a temple, replies the Christian. Jesus is our temple. No temple, but where do your priests work and do their rituals? We don't have priests to mediate the presence of God, replies the Christian. Jesus is our priest. No priest, well, where do you offer your sacrifices and acquire the favor of your God? We don't need a sacrifice, replies the Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice. What kind of religious is this, sputters the pagan neighbor? And the answer is, it's no religion at all. That's about a relationship with the living God. And so obviously this made the Christians stick out among their neighbors. Persecution began to grow, first in Rome. Rome burned in the summer of AD 64. And as you probably learned famously in history class, as the legend goes, Nero fiddled, right? While Rome burned. Most scholars probably dispute that to this day. As a matter of fact, there's evidence that Nero tried to get the fire uh, under control, but he couldn't. But the political pressure continued to increase uh, and when Nero made the, the mistake of building one of his palaces on the side of something that had burned over, then people began to connect the dots and say, oh, he wanted it burned down so he could build his own monuments to himself. And so under that pressure, he found the Christians a convenient scapegoat and he executed them in brutal ways. As uh, one historian noted, some were dressed in furs and killed by dogs. Others were crucified or burned alive to light the night. Somewhere in the years 65 to 68 AD that Peter and Paul were both martyred in Rome. Peter, tradition tells us, crucified upside down. Paul was a Roman citizen, so he couldn't be crucified, probably died by the sword. And so that persecution breaks out in Rome. And then later it spreads to a larger area, uh, most of Asia Minor, when a few years later a guy named Domitian becomes the emperor. Now, Domitian was the first Roman emperor to declare himself a living God. He didn't want to wait until he was dead to be God. He said, I'm going to go ahead and take that title right here and right now. But he was quite the interesting guy. Uh, he was, by all accounts of historians, a sick and insecure man. Without going into all the gory details, Domitian left his brother to die. He seduced his own niece Niece, he buried people alive. He killed people for making jokes about him. And on top of all that, he had a festering wart on his forehead that he endlessly scratched, drawing blood. He demanded that everyone call him Lord and God. 
And because Christians refused to bow to him, they became his favorite scapegoats for everything going wrong in the empire. He regularly had Christians buried alive, beheaded, crucified, and one of his depraved favorites set on fire to light the Colosseums at night for their sporting events. And this is a picture that I took of a statue of him uh, that is there in the museum at Ephesus. I took this one just last September. So you can even see even his appearance, right? Just kind of, kind of grotesque and it feels off. And so it's against that backdrop that the book of Revelation is written. Uh, the timeline lines up that probably when John wrote Revelation, this is the persecution that the churches are facing. And this set the stage for more widespread persecution of the Christian faith in the second century, which we will get into uh, next week. But speaking of that, so the question becomes, how did the church survive, right? What, what was the Christian response? How did they respond uh, to, to the pressure they found, found from being rejected by the Jews, many of them rejected by their own families? What about the pressure of trying to conform to Roman society uh, and fit in? Well, the reality is, of course, they didn't conform. And martyrdom became common among the early Christians. There's a saying that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Uh, that's a quote from one of the early church historians. And because Christians were willing to die for what they believed, it made the world sit up and take notice. The apostles who had been scared and hiding uh, after the crucifixion believed that a risen Christ, believed in a risen Christ, and all were martyred except for John, who was exiled. Early church leaders, such as Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna, they refused to recant. This is the location where Polycarp was burnt. Uh, I was there in September. This is the modern day city of Izmir. It's the ancient biblical city of Smyrna. Right there in the middle of a modern town, you have the ruins uh, of, of their, their ancient sites there. And here Polycarp uh, say, uh, preached out loud, 86 years I have served Christ and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king, the one who has saved me? And he was burned there at 86 years old. Uh, for what he believed uh, on this spot. The other thing that arose were what we call apologists. So pastors, theologians, others began to answer the accusations hurled at them. Now, today when we talk about apologetics, we're talking about defending the faith. And certainly uh, we have to defend the faith in, the, the, faith in the, the, the line of different ideologies. But then they were trying to defend their faith to survive in the sense of that they wanted to be sure that people properly understood what Christians believed. Uh, the, the side benefit of that, of course, was that they clarified core Christian doctrines uh, to prove they, they weren't a threat to society um, in that sense. Uh, the benefit was, of course, that Christian scholarship for the first time was documented and spread. An early example is a guy named Justin Martyr because he was an apologist who was beheaded. So he was both an apologist and a martyr uh, for his faith. But he was the first one to kind of declare all truth is God's truth. That no matter where you find truth in the universe, right, it all points you back to God, uh, which is something that we still talk about to this day. And then we'll get into this more next week as well. You also had, of course, the rise of heresies. People who wanted to take the Christian message, twist it, subopt it, make it fit within their own ideological or philosophical framework. Uh, and so very early on, the church had to compete with these ideas and worldviews. Paul wrote Galatians to clarify the gospel message. Gnostics, there's a lot of the New Testament letters that are written with Gnosticism as a background that tried to deny the goodness of creation, including the incarnation of Jesus, and thought salvation could be attained only through, quote, secret knowledge. One of the reasons I bring this up is a couple years ago, there was a best-selling book called what? The Secret. 
It's just Gnosticism, repackaged, sold in a book. You know, its leading proponent goes on the Oprah Winfrey show. All of these things pointing out there's nothing new under the sun. And it's the power positive thinking, all of this stuff, right? That's the the secret. That's just a, a modern form of ancient Gnosticism. He had a guy named Marcion who claimed that the God of the Old Testament is vengeful and cruel while the God of the New Testament was loving and forgiving. Anybody heard that argument before? We hear it all the time, don't we? It's nothing new. It's been around since almost the, 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 the origin of Christianity. In response to such heresies, the early church produced the canon, as Brian talked about last week, the list of books for the New Testament, the Apostles' Creed, and the doctrine of apostolic succession in the church. So uh, to verify, right, the, the, the true line of succession, the idea that, that you know, faithful teachers uh, and leaders in the church had a connection, they had been mentored, they'd been discipled by someone uh, who was an apostle and that first generation of Christians was important. So how did the early church not just survive, but thrive? Here is a map, right, of Paul's mission journeys. And you can see those arrows going everywhere uh, to indicate how far the gospel spread uh, with Paul and the people who served alongside of him, guys like Silas and Barnabas and Luke uh, and others. And so in the face of all of this, it's remarkable, isn't it? to think about the fact that early Christianity exploded across the world. One of my favorite resources on the book of Acts is a book by the British pastor, Michael Green, 30 years that changed the world. That's from the beginning of Acts to the end of Acts. And Acts opens with the gospel just right there in Jerusalem. And it ends with Paul longing to take the gospel to the ends of the empire from Rome. And so it's remarkable to see. So we need to not overlook the fact that first and foremost, right, it's the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit in and through his people. It led the church to supernaturally overcome barriers to the gospel. But number two, the Christian way of life was appealing to those who were repulsed by the moral depravity of the Roman Empire. You see, we always talk about the brokenness of our world, and it's terrible. But the silver lining, if there is one, is that people come to the end of themselves like the, the younger brother in the story of the prodigal son, right? They, they end up at the bottom of the barrel and they realize they can't, they can't find what they're looking for in life through their excesses, through their pleasures. And all of a sudden they begin a quest to look for something more. And so the, the New Testament is filled with what's called God-fearers, people like Cornelius in Acts 10. In Paul's sermon in, in, in Acts 13, he points to these, his sermon at Pisidian Antioch as well. He points to the fact that there are God-fearers out there. There are people who are respectful of God and that really, when you look out at a culture, most people are trying to do the right thing and they are searching for answers and they need those answers. And the Christian message held those. And so number three, the Christian message also appealed to outsiders, as we've talked about, women, slaves, other minority and marginalized groups in Roman culture. Church was family. And they celebrated the Lord's Day on Sundays. That was a radical step. They took communion together. They shared, they ate, and they learned scriptures together. The end of Acts 2 documents that, how they really were a family. Again, one of my favorite resources on the church is called When Church Was a Family, Recovering and Recapturing Jesus' Vision for Authentic Christian Community by Joseph Hellerman. Talks about those first century Christians that when they embraced Jesus as Savior and got kicked out of their families and they lost their jobs and they lost their inheritance, the church instantly brought them in and they became family to one another. And guess what's happening in our world today? In our culture today, people are being ostracized for what they believe. You'll get canceled. You'll lose your job. Guess what's going to have to happen? 
We have to become the family of God again to one another, to support each other, encourage each other, to share our resources together, to work together. Uh, more and more that world is reemerging for us as well. And we're gonna have to look back to the early church uh, to see how they did it and how they modeled it for us. And then number four, for many, the ancient gods and goddesses seemed increasingly impotent and inadequate. Not only did Christianity offer a personal relationship with God, it did so through God becoming a man whose life intersected human history. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. No religion had a message like that. The gods were far off and distant if they were there at all. The gods actually, the gods were, because they were a creation of man, they looked more like men, right? With their affairs and their going ons and their, uh, all of the things that they taught in their culture. It looked very, very different. Uh, Hebrews chapter four, we do not serve a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, right? And so that was a compelling message to those people. So pretty remarkable to think about. And of all of the things we could kind of close with for a devotional thought, uh, I thought I'd share with you one, uh, an experience that I had in Turkey this last fall. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter two. We actually went through the letters to the, the churches in Revelation this summer, but I got to hike all seven of these sites. Uh, and the letter to Pergamum uh, is the one that probably had the biggest impact on me because I, had, I didn't have an understanding of the context, how deep the context went uh, of this city. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is verse 12 of chapter two of Revelation. Thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. Interesting. Pergamum was the capital of the Adelaide Empire. It was the first place where there was a temple built for an imperial cult worship, in other words, to worship the Roman emperor in all of Asia. So the, the, the ruler of Pergamum, the governor, was given permission to wield the sword or to met out capital punishment when nobody else could do that in that region. Isn't it interesting how specific this letter is? The double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you where Satan lives. So as we hiked this site, we went on a little tour. Where does Satan live? Seven possibilities, right? Here's a picture. You can see the city over my left-hand shoulder. Number one, the, temp or the altar to Zeus. Uh, so just the ruins of the altar are up there to the left. In the middle is what Pergamum would have looked like in the first century. To the upper right is they've actually taken the stones there and recreated it, the original stones, in a museum in Berlin. But this is the altar to Zeus. And so people would come there. This altar was built there in about AD, or, uh, BC uh, 170. And so in the city of 150,000 people, people would make sacrifices to Zeus. And that kind of helped give the air on this Acropolis or this high city, you know, that there was uh, something important and spooky and mysterious happening because there was always this haze from the altar that was encircling that hilltop. So altar to Zeus, maybe, maybe that's what... John is referring to what Jesus is saying is the, the throne of Satan, Satan's seat. The second one doesn't look much, very impressive right now, but it was in its time. This is the ruins of the library. At the time, Pergamum had the largest library in the world, 200,000 scrolls. As a matter of fact, when the library at Alexandria burned, Alexander the Great came and got all of the scrolls there. No, I'm sorry, Mark Antony came and got all of the scrolls from there and took them to Alexandria. Hence why it doesn't stand anymore. But that was the location of that because what? Knowledge is power. And especially in the ancient world when scrolls, that kind of knowledge would have been really, really rare. That was a big deal. 
The other thing that I already mentioned is this was the first site of imperial worship. So they were able to erect the first temple to the Roman emperors there. And that was a big deal that you paid your homage, that you honored Caesar as Lord wherever you went in the empire. The other possibility, there was a temple to Athena there. She was the goddess of, anybody remember? War, Alexander the Great's favorite goddess with all of his his conquests. Uh, And so here's the ruins to the temple of Athena. But they also love their theater, just like we love our entertainment to this day. Here is the steepest and one of the largest theaters in the ancient world. It sat 30,000 people on that slope. And you would sit by, guess what? Social class. And so even when you went to your entertainment, you sat by the class that you were a part of. And so there was this massive, massive theater. And right next to it was a temple to Dionysus, who is the, the Greek or the Roman God, of course, and Greek God of uh, wine and theater. And so maybe this, right? It's the theater and it's propaganda and it's messages that it sends. Or what about our sporting events, right? We spend millions of dollars. Uh, we spend all kinds of attention in homage, in homage to, our, to our gladiators in our era. Well, this is the gladiator ring. This was the gymnasium uh, that was there at Pergamum, uh, where the athletes, people would line up to see the athletes do their thing as well. And then last but not least, there is our desire to be healed from whatever is ailing us. And so in the lower city, not on the Acropolis, But here was what was called the Asclepius. And this was the place that was kind of a combination health spa slash Vanderbilt Medical Center because they didn't know a ton about medicine. If you wanted to be healed, you came there. And this is where all the surgeons were. This is where your dentists were in the ancient world. Only the wealthiest of the wealthy could afford to go here. And if you were really lucky, you got to drink out of this little fountain that promised it would heal you. And so... There was a statue there, interestingly enough, thinking about our story from Numbers 21, right? That looked like this. This was the base of it. Has snakes all over it as well for the healing of the people. This is a little replica of that that I picked up when I was there because the people would become and they would worship this. And so we spent the day hiking, examining the passages, looking at all of these. Any guesses? Let's see a show of hands. Which one is Satan's throne? All right, you got to vote. Everybody has to vote at least once. Altar to Zeus. Show of hands, okay, several of you, all right. How about the largest library in the world? Anybody think that's Satan's throne? One, thank you for that, all right, so yeah. All right, the Trajan Temple, the home of imperial worship. Okay, I see a couple there, nice. How about Athena's Temple? Is that the, the throne of Satan? Got the, oh, okay, a couple of you, all right. How about the theater and the temple? A little subtle, but okay, got one there. How about the, the temple of uh, Demeter or the giant gymnasium? Gladiators, where they duked it out. Anybody there? No, you don't think entertainment? You don't think sports are a god in our culture? Look how much money is spent on them? How much time is invested in them? And then the Asclepian, right? People worshiping health. So some of you in healthcare, look at that, right? You know, you know what it's like. People, people desire that. Well, obviously, it's difficult for us to know. Our guide believes it was all of them. So all of the above. Because... These were the places that people would go to spend all of their time, their money that would come from all over the empire in an attempt to find what they were looking for. And so my thought as I walked away from that trip was this. In the face of this kind of power and propaganda and wealth and mythology, how did five Galilee kids, we know that five of the disciples made it up to this area, 
and one radically converted rabbi named Paul up in the greatest empire the world has ever known. What does it say in Revelation 2? You have held fast to my name. Everyday faithfulness. Everyday faithfulness. I don't think any of them set out to say, we're going to upend the Roman Empire, right? Or we're going to live our best life now. Or we're going to do any of these things, right? Instead, they set out to be faithful to the gospel, faithful to Jesus. And in a million little acts of not recanting, of serving their neighbors, of inviting people into their church family, of doing what the Bible says to do. It eventually upended, as we'll see, the entire Roman Empire. I love this. One more little thing before we do a couple of questions. At the end of this letter in Revelation, right? It says, let anyone who has ears listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone and on the stone a new name is inscribed and no one knows except the one who receives it. So we know, right, that for those who are in Christ Jesus, he has our name inscribed on a stone. There at Pergamum are white stones inscribed with names. Don't you love how the Bible doesn't miss a thing? It connects all of the dots. And our goal, your goal, my goal should be that our name, right, isn't left inscribed on some stone that eventually, right, will pass away on earth, but instead that our name is inscribed on that white stone in the Lamb's book of life and in heaven. So, all right, that's what we've got for tonight. Thanks for hanging with me. Um, as Brian's coming up, a couple of quick resources. Uh, Cahill's Desire of the Everlasting Hills, The World's Before and After Jesus, I would recommend. I've already mentioned Hellerman's and Green's books. Rodney Stark's The Rise of Christianity. Uh, and Paul Meyer has done the, probably the best translations on Eusebius and Josephus, uh, which if you want to get into more of the original source stuff, uh, is your best bet. All right. One or, one or two questions. One or two, one or two okay. questions. Fantastic questions as always, guys. Uh, the first one is, Christianity is different when followed faithfully. However, how do we explain Catholicism being the church for so long when they, when they had dominantly flawed doctrine? Well, the Reformation, right? right? I was going to say, Martin We're, Luther came yeah. from somewhere. So. Yeah, yeah. We, it, it's a great question. It really does. It, 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 it will help clarify, I think, that the journey that the church had to go on. One quick hint, Brian and I were talking about this earlier. Even in this handout, there was a lot of scripture to refer to in the early days of the church. We know Reformation forward, there's a lot of scripture to refer to. There's a gap there in the Middle Ages, so-called Dark Ages, in which we'll have to dig a little harder, right? I mean, all truth is God's truth at all times. But the point being is, is that as the church went away from the word and it sought the power of the world, that's when it got itself into trouble. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, who, if any, had the title of king of the Jews before Herod? Because Herod succeeded his, his dad, which was like Antipater or something like that, mm -hmm. who was poisoned. But he wasn't given that title. So right. I think Herod was probably the, the first, first one, one. Well, to Herod, be granted that by the Roman Senate because the Roman Senate didn't exist much before that. Well, and Herod was also claimed his Jewishness, right, mm -hmm. to a greater degree than his family. Because his mom was Arab, I think. And so he was really, he really emphasized, and he was a descendant of Esau, right? And Edomite. so, yeah, and he was an Edomite. So, I mean, all of that plays into insecurity. All of that plays into a, a really weird mix of a human being. Again, brilliantly talented, but utterly ruthless and power hungry. He would associate with power and did so very early on, which was how he got appointed tetrarch, 
right, in 40 B.C. or something like that. There are two incredible biographies on Herod. They both came out the same year, two or three years ago. Uh, And if any of you want those, I could post those or or tell you, point you to those. Yeah, those are, yeah, they're fantastic. Whole books books just on Herod. Uh, Next one, when the Cephagent was delivered to scattered Jews, any guess the number of Jews believed or converted to Christianity and what was the group of Jews converted? I I think we're a a little bit off on the timeline. The Cephagent was translated about 300 B.C.-ish, in that range, 373 seems to come to mind, um, which was long before Jesus came. Mm-hmm. And so what, what that was was Alexander the Great translating the, the Old Testament into Greek so it could be more widely spread, so it was a universal language as opposed to a specific language of those people. Yeah. And so there weren't, weren't necessarily conversions yeah. when that was delivered. Right, it was in use by the time that the missionaries would get there. Right. And so that's where the, the folks with the Jewish background would be able to say, this, you know, this scripture that you have in your hands, let me tell you about the fulfillment of those prophecies. So in, in, in the time of the missionaries, in the time of the, the first and second centuries, that, that being in people's hands would have accelerated you know, the ability to point people to the Messiah, to Jesus. Yeah. Next is, what was the main difference between Jews and Christians in the first century? Were Jews considered Christian as well or more than just a religious sect? Yeah, actually, Christians were considered a subset of the Jews, which is how they got protection, because the Romans had a a particular respect for the Jews because their religion was old, ironically. And when when they started to recognize Christianity as something new, that was when the Romans started to, to, to persecute the Christians. Is that a fair? Mm-hmm. Yep, that's fair assessment. Point. Yep. Uh, let's see. How did the Christian message get out and taught after the apostles and prior to the Bible in its canon? Well, the letters were circulating, right? That's, that's kind of, we talked about last week, kind of how the Bible came together. Those letters, those gospels were circulating among the people, mm-hmm. among the churches. And so... And word of mouth, evan- right. personal evangelism. I mean, they, they, they shared, they were, you know, there was... Uh, you know, the idea that you would have a Christian who didn't share the gospel would have been unheard of right. in that era. Um, they, they, they shared it on a regular basis. And from everything we know, they were incredibly effective and faithful at doing so. Uh, let's see. Imagine living in Sicily, hearing Paul preach Jesus for the first time, believing and following him with no knowledge of the outside world, proof of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Good with that. Uh, we need to turn the world right side up. It's been upside down for too long. That'll happen when Jesus comes back. Amen. Up till then, we're going to be pretty upside down for a while. Uh, let's see. Things keep moving, and that confuses me because I'm slow. Okay. Uh, regarding Catholicism, the Pope crowning Charlemagne in 800 did a lot to give the Catholic Church power over the new Holy Roman Empire. You know, they were constantly intermingling with the world's power. Which, yes. is how they, which is how they left the book. And the Pope's word, as we talked about last week, right? The heretics got convicted because they had the audacity to say that God's law was greater than the Pope's law, right? That's what got several of the early translators killed yep. was saying that. So. Yep, and we got some history students out there, so dropping some Charlemagne on us a few weeks ahead of time. Yeah, this is, this is, yeah, this is bad news for me. <laughs> yeah, news. Brian and I talked about this earlier. We, you know, again, I'd spent some time as a, you know, studying history, history teacher, have an interest in it. It's impossible to remember all the dates, all the names, all the things. So when it comes Q&A time, like, man, we're, if you play stump the pastors, like, you know, you'll get you, us. You win. I promise. Yeah. Like, we're not going to try to win that game. Um, but what we are trying to do is draw out those themes and help you see how God has been faithful 
working through everyday faithful Christians to advance the gospel, to strengthen the church. Uh, and a lot of times, despite right, ourselves, yeah. as a lot of the things we'll see throughout Christian history, right, yet the church endures, which is a testimony to the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so it's remarkable to me, though, that, that these early Christians had such resolve and faith that they were willing to die for what they believed in, uh, that they were willing uh, to totally change their way of life. Let's be honest, for most of us in this room, when you and I became a Christian, it cost us very little. It cost these first Christians everything. It cost them their families, it cost them their jobs, it cost them their inheritance. For many of them, it cost them their life. And you have to wonder with the way our culture is going if we won't be in a similar position in months, decades, you know, and years, years to come if Jesus tarries that, that much. So I think more so than ever, we'll have to look back to the early church uh, as our example of what it looks like to be faithful. Well, that's what we were talking about. We got to talk about over here before before the session. That you know, nothing's new. I'm, I'm working on the heresies for next week. They're they're all the same. I, I I would read a heresy and then I can Google you a news article of today mm-hmm. of where that heresy is prominent. It, it is staggering that we're always the same. We taught that I taught that class on Deuteronomy for you know, three hours a week for five years, which tortured people. But the, when we by the time we were in the second or third week of that. The, the 25-year-olds were coming to me going, these words are truer now than when Moses spoke them. I said, that's exactly right. I said, we are the same. We are equally lost. And by the power of Jesus through the Holy Spirit, we're saved, right? Mm-hmm. Just like they needed to be saved. Just like our kids and our grandkids are going to need to be saved, right? Mm-hmm. Same Jesus. Same Jesus. And that's hopefully what you're seeing in, as we go through this, this yeah, history. that's good. Let's close with this tonight, and then Brian's going to pray for us. Paul in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, I think sums it up so well. I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful. We're thankful for your grace, thankful for your son that saves us. We serve a mighty God. When you look at all the ways we tried to screw this up, Father, and to see your faithfulness to us, to see you continuing to, 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 to teach, that we teach to faithful men, and that, and that it propagated all the way to us, Father, that we would have the opportunity to be saved. Father, that's just magnificent. And help us continue to tie these things together, to see your hand at work so we can more clearly see how you're working right now how you're working in and through us, how your spirit is working through your church so that we may save as many as possible through your power, Father. You may save as many as possible. Father, bless us to be changed. We've encountered your truth and let us walk out of here different people than came in. In the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray, amen.